Good morning. I'll be reading from Nehemiah 14, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. This is the word of the Lord. There was a young boy who was called by his friends and family, Al. His teachers um, said of him, not only can't he hear because he was hearing impaired, but they said he was stupid and unteachable. And as a child, he accidentally burned down the family barn. Uh, you know, kids do silly things, but fortunately we didn't have a barn because that might have happened at our house. I can remember my son who was fascinated with pyrotechnics doing something in the driveway one time. And before it was all over, there was a spot in the driveway that was this big, black. I took muriatic acid and everything I could to clean that up. It never went away. So I see this young man who burns down the family barn, and I'm just glad we didn't have one. He accidentally burns down the family barn, but not only that, he gets his first job at a railroad company and he gets fired almost immediately because he's not very well focused. And as a matter of fact, his lack of attentiveness uh, turned into an accident, a train derailed. It wasn't the last time this young man and later as an old man got fired because he just didn't seem to walk to the step of the dominant drummer. He just was different. He really knew how to invent things, though. 
He could put things together and fix things that no one else could. And he became rather famous for his inventions. But even then, he was criticized and belittled for the things that people thought were outrageous. On one occasion, a committee from the British Parliament, looking at some of his inventions, they they said this. They said, his inventions are unworthy of the attention of practical or scientific men. And his real name was Thomas Edison. And he invented the light bulbs, which illuminate our sanctuary. And he actually invented a microphone that I project my voice with. And an old thing called a phonograph, the predecessor to all kinds of recording devices that we now use. He was someone who had a different view about life and he was very focused on what he could accomplish, but people just ignored him sometimes, thought he was crazy other times. His teachers called him stupid. One time uh, someone asked him, uh, Mr. Edison, all those uh, failures you had on your way to success, um, tell us about it. His response was this, I never failed once. Success happens to be a 2,000 step process. (laughs) Don't you love that? What a perspective. Success, a 2,000 step process. I just kept working on my project. I knew I had a mission, and I stayed with it, in spite of the criticisms and the supposed failures. Thomas Edison reminds me a little bit of this story today. Uh, For three Sundays, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah. At this particular point in the story of Nehemiah, he's getting all kinds of oppositions and criticisms, and some of the opposition is severe. But Nehemiah is very focused. He knows exactly what he's called to do, and he will not be deterred. And that's how this story unfolds. You'll notice the first part of the opposition towards Nehemiah and the people in this passage. The first assault, let's call it, is an assault that could be summarized with one word, ridicule. They just ridiculed Nehemiah. They said, are you kidding me? Can you really reconstruct those walls in a day? Duh. No, not in a day. Actually, they did it in 52 days. As a matter of fact, those walls are impossible to reconstruct. No, they're really not. Those walls that you've tried to rebuild right now are so fragile that if a fox got up on them, they would crumble. That wasn't true either. Can you think of a more nimble creature than a fox? He'd never knock down a wall. Do you notice what's characteristic of those criticisms, that ridicule, it's full of exaggeration and untruth. And still, it gets under your skin. Did you ever notice that? I mean, you guys who are younger, who are in school, elementary or high school or junior high school, have you ever noticed that some of the worst criticism is really not true? It's sarcasm, it's ridicule, it's exaggeration, and still it gets under your skin. It's a funny thing about ridicule. It has a way of almost eclipsing the truth, doesn't it? But Nehemiah refused to let the silliness of ridicule and exaggeration get under his skin. 
And he said to the people, we're, we're not going to let that bother us. We got a mission and this is how we're going to do it. First thing we're going to do is we're going to acknowledge the criticism and the exaggeration and the ridicule. And we're going to acknowledge all this together in prayer. And so that wonderful prayer Nehemiah puts up, he says, hear, O God, for we're despised. What I'd like for you to do, God, if you'll listen, I would like for you to turn their insults or their ridicule, their exaggeration back on them. Just make it a boomerang effect. Put it back on their own heads. And don't cover up their guilt. Allow the insults to hurt them and not us. Uh, Do you notice what didn't happen? Nehemiah did not respond in kind, apparently. He didn't try to insult them tit for tat from the wall. He couldn't be bothered. He didn't react violently against them when they threatened violence. In effect, he was saying, you know what? I get something, God. Vengeance is your court. You'll take care of it. So I just want to remind you, we're following your plan. Please do your work. Turn it back against them. And then they went about their business. Actually, you know what happened? It had the opposite effect to the critics. It increased the resolve. It seems that more they criticized, the more the people rallied around the project. Oh, there were times when they were discouraged and in despair. But in 52 days, they rebuilt this wall. The exaggeration, the ridicule, it didn't work. It did turn back on them. The wall went up in spite of them. As a matter of fact, the criticism, the insults, in retrospect, Isaiah may say to himself, hmm, that was a blessing in disguise. But that was just the first assault The first wave of criticism, it was ridiculed. The second wave of opposition was different. It was a threat of violence. They basically said, we're going to take you out. You better watch your back because we're going to kill you people working on the wall. And anyone around you, we're going to eliminate you. Now that does have a way of distracting you from erecting a wall. When you think somebody's behind you about to kill you. And Nehemiah said, no, stop. Don't worry about this because our God will protect us. And furthermore, we're not just going to turn it over to God. We're going to take matters into our own hands in terms of preparation. You're going to arm yourself and you're going to stand there ready to fight if need be while you continue to work on the wall. So he posts some people with swords and other weapons ready for an attack and other people continue to work on the wall. At another place in chapter 6, he describes it this way. He said, we worked night and day on the wall. We didn't do anything at all but work on the wall. As a matter of fact, we never even took off our clothes to go to sleep. Maybe that's why they got the wall done in 52 days. The guy next to him stunk so bad they couldn't stand it. You know, no, seriously, they they were focused, right? They knew what they were about. They knew what they were going to do. And even though at points they were overwhelmed by discouragement, their strength did not ultimately fail. And they built that wall. Now, that's the story in short order. You heard it. It's a fascinating story of an incredible leader. But obviously, there's lessons in the story for us today. 
I, um, I want to begin with a couple um, that might surprise you. What, what you would expect me to do at this point is to tell you to be encouraged. Keep up the good work. Don't worry about the criticism. I'll get there, but hang on. I have another application to make. Remember that opposition in your life, when you're following God, is frequently a blessing in disguise. Why? Because if you're anything like me, you can have a focus and a mission and get lazy. You know what I mean? It's nobody's fault but yours. The lethargy is self-induced, but you're not working like you should. And the criticism can be a blessing in disguise that spurs you on. I have frequently said that criticism launched from any source is an opportunity for us to learn. From any source. Your friends, your enemies, even the devil. There's something to be learned about who you are when somebody criticizes you. So it's an opportunity to spur you on and to think critically about your job. That's the first point. Second point that you might consider to be negative is this. This was real. This was an occasion of persecution. However, it's real easy for us to adopt a persecution complex. Guard against that as well. In other words, sometimes when things aren't going well, when we're getting criticized, we go to persecution mode. And we say, here's the devil attacking from the outside. Here's the critics coming down on me. And all you can think about is pity poor you who's being persecuted. And you get a persecution complex. And you can't see clearly because all you're immersed in is self-pity over the persecution that you think is coming your direction. And criticism might be coming your direction. But a persecution complex will help you. Why? Because we need, third, to be absolutely realistic. Not have a persecution complex. Here's absolute realism. If you're doing good, opposition will always be there. It's inevitable. Just accept it. You want to get beat up? Do something good. Toe the line. Be different. See how long it takes. It'll happen. Just expect it. We had a president uh, named Teddy Roosevelt a long time ago. And clearly Teddy Roosevelt, just like any other president, politician, or person on the earth, was not always on the right side of every issue. Right? But Teddy Roosevelt did know a thing about opposition. And he understood that opposition shouldn't slow you down. And he understood that criticism 
Well, it was something other than just criticism. Here's what he said about opponents and critics. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of a deed may have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deed? Who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? Don't fold under the criticism because the critic, for the most part, doesn't count. The critic like Sanballat and Tobiah, they're not in the arena. The critic is just harping around the edges. The critic is trying to interrupt the progress of good. So remember, the credit goes to the man who's in there who strives mightily, blood, sweat, and tears, and sees even failure as an accomplishment towards the end. So, okay, now that I got the negative part out of the way, let's move on to the next part in terms of application. It's more positive. It's this. It almost sounds like a contradiction of what I said a little earlier, but it's not. Remember this. There is an adversary of your soul. Yeah, don't blame the devil for everything, but remember, there's no one who wants you to fail more than Satan. Yes, I just said it, Satan, the devil. The very force of evil that God is against in this world wants you to fail if you're following Christ. He's got a target on your back And he, along with your critics, even if the critics are properly placed and actually have something to say, he wants to destroy you. So in the midst of your opposition, when you're weighed down by discouragement, where you think whatever you're doing is not turning out to any good effect, when you think you're not up for the task, when you feel like quitting right now, remember, that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to stop. He wants to interrupt righteousness in your life. And it's real, my friends, it's real. The scripture tells us that Satan's like a roaring lion going out seeking who he can devour. And we're led by the scripture, in First Peter especially, to resist him with everything we have. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that the struggle that we're in is not just against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers and rulers of this present world against evil in dark, high places. It's trying to destroy you when you follow God. Just know it. It's there. You don't need a persecution complex. You don't need to blame everything on the devil, but you need to know there's an adversary for your soul. It's serious business. 
Second thing to remember in a more positive light is whatever doesn't defeat you is going to make you stronger. You say, oh, here we go again. You know, coy little phrase that I've heard a thousand times. Yeah, but it's true. Might be worn out, but it's true. Whatever doesn't defeat you is going to make you stronger if you have the proper attitude. And that's why you see Scripture repeating that theme over and over again. How about this one from the epistle to uh, the epistle of James? Uh, James says to those who are going through tough times, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. Oh, here comes the persecution. It's time to sing and give thanks. What is with this guy? He knows something. Consider it pure joy, my friends, my brothers in Christ, sisters who follow our Lord, when trials of many kinds come your way. Why? Because you know, don't you? You know, says James, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And you know what happens, he says, when the testing of your faith develops perseverance in you? It makes you persevere. And you know what perseverance does for you? It makes you mature in your faith. You know what maturity means? It means you grow up and you get wise. That's the point of this persecution, he says. So that's why you rejoice in it. Not because you've got a sadistic complex. Not because you like pain but because you know what it's about. Another phrase comes from Romans uh, chapter 6, pardon me, chapter 5. Paul says, we also rejoice in our sufferings. What is with these apostles? Rejoicing in their sufferings. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope, and hope will not disappoint. Do you see what Paul's saying in that passage as well as James? He's not saying just tough it out, right? He's not saying, oh, it'll make you a man. You know, like you used to tell your kid when he didn't want to do something, he was whining. You need to grow up and tough it out. That's not what he's saying. He's something more than that. Something more than that. He's saying, I want you to persevere in your pursuit of righteousness in doing what God has called you to because you can't see the whole picture because you need to have an eternal perspective on your material reality when it seems like everything's going wrong and persecution is killing you i want to tell you that if you persevere if you have character if you have hope you can believe and rightly believe that god is at work in your life even if you can't see it and you can't feel it because your purposes when you're aligned with god are eternal they're not physical and in this world only. That's why you should rejoice in suffering. Because some huge, big, grand story is taking place. And you're helping it along. And you're maturing in the process. This perspective um, on God's work being the eternal work that sometimes is invisible... It's about the only thing that can keep you steady, isn't it? Because you know, in your most sane and calm moments, that God is working out His will in your life and in the life of others. You know when you read the Scripture, when you're immersed in it, when you're not discouraged in the moment, you know that the 
The very activity of God and His work is invincible. Why is it invincible? Because it can't be destroyed. Why is it invincible? Because it's eternal. It cannot be destroyed. So when you align yourself with the purposes of God, you're aligning yourself with the invincibility of God's plan. And even when you fail, you cannot fail when you pursue righteousness. Because God's invincible plans will march on. Sometimes you feel like it's a failure. I understand that. Maybe you've dedicated your life to serving other people. You're really not making much money. You're certainly not famous. And most of the time, nobody notices. But you spend your life serving others and investing in others. And on any given day, you think, I just don't know if it's worth it. I could do something else. Take heart. If you're called by God to whatever that is, God is working out His invincible purposes through you in this present world. Don't give up. I mean, that might be just being a parent, right? It might be training those little children or... In my case, those adult children, which I have to stop training anymore. You know, it's a different approach. You you may have invested all your heart and all your love. If you're a good parent, you do. And you say to yourself, but it didn't work. It's not working out the way I planned. Well, first of all, you're not sovereign, so you don't know what the plan is. So give that one up, okay? Second of all, you don't know what God is doing in their life, in the life of those people that you love, especially those people that you raised. But if you follow God and you're faithful, God is going to work out His will in your life and in theirs. He promises to do it. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know God will. You may be discouraged because you're the kind of person. You wouldn't put it this way because it sounds braggadocious. But you take the moral high road. You make decisions all the time at work. In what you might call a purely secular environment. By the way, that's not true. Nobody's work is purely secular. Not if you're a Christ follower. Your work is a vocation that God's given you to demonstrate his love to the world. But anyway, in your so-called secular work, you feel on any given day that you're towing the mark, that you're taking the moral high ground, that you're not taking the shortcuts, that you're being honest and nobody else is, it seems. And you despair. Don't. Because every decision you make is in the purposes of God in that place. You can't see all the details, but you can trust that God is working out His will in you and in that work environment because of you, because God is in control. So be faithful. Don't take the shortcuts. And remember this perspective of the psalmist. It was David who got overwhelmingly discouraged on one occasion. And he said, God, I look around me, and everywhere I look, the wicked are prospering. Everybody who's doing the opposite of the will of God is getting ahead. 
Everything about me says I ought to be on that side of the street because they're making progress and I'm over here floundering. And he said, I complained to God. By the way, don't you love the Psalms? They just say it like it is, right? If you haven't been there in a while, go back to the Psalms and pray them. David and the other psalmists just say it exactly like it is. They tell God exactly what they're thinking. And sometimes you say, whoa, you're supposed to say that? Yeah, apparently so. Just say it to God. And then in the midst of that travail and complaining to God, David composes the rest of the psalm and he said, and then I entered the house of the Lord. Then all of a sudden in the temple, my perspective changed. And I realized their end. It was a slippery slope. Their path led to destruction. And I thank God for the insight. That's a good reminder, isn't it? I, I, I won't ask you to raise your hands. But I could almost guarantee you that there's 50 people here today who this week were exactly where David was. You've entered the house of God. Listen to the word of God. Believe it. Hang on to it. Trust it. It's true. The opposition that you face will only make you better. And the opposition that you face when you're doing the will of God cannot, cannot intercept his purposes no you can't see the details I can't see the details I don't understand how it's going to work you know why because I'm a foot soldier and so are you you're in the field grinding out the work but there's this general so to speak who's got a plan sees the battle and already knows the end of the story. Don't you want to be a part of that? You can be. Take heart. God's working in your life. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you didn't just leave us alone to our own devices. Uh, first of all, we're thoroughly sinful, and we would have messed it up in a big way, as we have routinely. Instead of leaving us to our own devices, you invited us into your plan and your purposes in the world. And even there we stumble and fall, and even our sinfulness there impedes our progress, and, and we think sometimes yours. But there's something else we know, that your plans and your purposes are, are absolutely perfect. And they're invincible. You, you can't be stopped, God. So when we realize that, on our good days and in our best moments. It gives us such courage. It gives us faith to go on. When we believe it, Lord, it gives our life as small as it is, eternal meaning. So we pray, Lord, as we leave this week, you'll remind us of the truth of your word. Remind us that you're the sovereign God of the universe and your purposes will be accomplished and give us the faith to follow you so we can be a part of that enormously big story called the good news.
And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.